Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Today I have with me the Chalcedon Foundation's Vice President, Martin Selbretti to discuss his recent essay in the Chalcedon publication, Arise and Build, entitled The Organic Nature of Scripture. Now, at first, this may seem to be an abstract topic without a lot of practical application, unless you consider the ramifications of failing to understand and embrace the true nature of God's inscriptured word. In failing here, Is it surprising that we have also failed in identifying the organic natures of male and female, the organic nature of marriage, the organic nature of the child in the womb from its earliest existence, and the nature of justice in the civil realm? So the question I'll pose is this, is our belief about the Bible too weak? Martin, thanks for coming to discuss this, what I consider a very important topic. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for inviting me, Andrea. So if you would please begin with how believers and unbelievers alike view the scripture in a way that you would describe as non-organic. Right. And by uh, organic or inorganic, I'm not referring to the absence of pesticides, obviously. Uh, I'm interested in the Bible, the scriptures being treated as a whole, as an organism, if you will. Uh, it is a living word, after all, uh, and uh, its unity uh, is key to understanding uh, what's going on here. Uh, we know for an absolute fact that the non-believer will always treat the Bible as an inorganic or a, a fragmented uh, bunch of writings. They'll say this was written over the course of 16 centuries by a whole bunch of different people and then edited, and it's just a, uh, a, a patchwork quilt of different disparate things that contradict each other. And so they believe it's appropriate to analyze individual pieces of the Scripture, to tear it apart, to tear its attributes apart, and to put the microscope on each one and say, see here, look at this, see here, look at that. And so they always approach it in this, what we call analytic way. Now, you might think, isn't analysis a good thing? Isn't an analytic point of view appropriate? Well, it depends. Uh, If you want to understand how a human body works, uh, it doesn't make sense to kill the human and then study it when it's dead or pull it into pieces at that point. Uh, the best way to understand it is when it's alive and well, and you're understanding it as it functions and works in the real world, living, breathing, heart pumping, muscles working. Uh, that's a very, very different thing than uh, the inert, dead, pulled into pieces human body. Because what analysis means is to cut something into par- parts, into pieces, to look at it, to look at the individual pieces and then draw conclusions. And when you take a human body and cut it into pieces, well, it's no longer alive. It's not the same thing anymore. It has been treated in a very different way, fragmented way. Uh, And this is the very thing that we have to resist when it comes to scriptures. It must always be dealt with as a whole, as a unity, 
because that's actually what it is. The scripture uh, speaks to this uh, unitary. Um, in fact, it even says it, as I quoted in the article, when Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken, uh, you cannot pull it into pieces. Uh, and I think Ben Till was right on the mark when he said, uh, if you start to go down this path, then you're saying to the unbeliever, uh, it's okay for you to analyze these individual pieces uh, individually. And that means he's allowed to do his destructive work uh, to look at one thing in isolation from the other pieces. And this is the slippery slope, which ends in disaster because the Bible then becomes abstractions. Now, right. This, uh, yeah. This sounds like it's um, an esoteric discussion, but it's not. We're denying the nature of scripture. We're denying the power of scripture when we approach it in this particular way. And it is a way that's alien to the Bible itself. And it does not reflect on its actual nature. In fact, it distorts it in a way that deprives it of its power and tries to uh, short circuit it. And so that's the point that we're raising in this discussion. All right. Now there are people listening who might say, Hmm, have I approached scripture in a weak or ineffectual manner? So give an example of how someone might piecemeal the scripture as opposed to looking at it as a systematic whole. We do this a lot because we'll say, well, uh, it's there's poetry here and then there is prophecy here and then there's history there and there's ethics over there. Second, we go down that path. We start to again, pull it into pieces. It's not that these statements are false, but that they're incomplete and that incompleteness means that we're not seeing that like the the church of god which is you know jointly compacted together um each part contributing to the whole we're actually looking at these individual pieces and i think that creates the problem we must never consider any piece of scripture in isolation from the rest of it uh it's like they say uh it was, it was sad that we actually have the bible uh split into pieces to begin with and we have this piece of paper between the Old and the New Testaments, that flyleaf, and that suggests that it's divided into two. We have individual books. We have chapter divisions, and all these things, cons- uh, we look at ways to divide the Scripture up. We talk about how many verses are in the shortest psalm and how many are in the longest psalm. Uh, not seeing this as a unity. We're seeing all the diversity in it, but we're not seeing the unity of it. And when you go down the path of just emphasizing the diversity of it, uh, we miss something very, very important, which is it actually has one author, and it is a living, breathing, powerful thing. The, the Word of God is alive, living, and powerful, uh, we read in Hebrews 4.12. Uh, and it's also personal. That's the other thing that we want to get at. It's not an impersonal record of things. It's actually a part of God's redemptive act in creating the Scripture in the first place. It is a gift to us, and it is so precious to God that uh, in Psalm 138, I think it's verse 2, we read that thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. So important is the word of God that God has actually set it over his own name in terms of its emphasis and its importance. So, So do you think that with this erroneous or lesser view of Scripture, it has caused Christians... Um, those who read the scripture to um, 
experience or find out what God is revealing, they miss the fact that it isn't just a story about redemption, that the scripture in and of itself is redemptive. Correct. In essence, we're saying, and we're not the only ones to have said this, that Christ's uh, redemptive work did not end at the cross. Uh, It's true that he uh, said it is finished, but what was finished was his particular work uh, for atoning, for shedding his blood. But what that was not yet done was the completion of the scriptures. He was still going to go ahead and preside over that process of completing the scriptures. The New Testament had not been written yet. That's the capstone of the revelation of God, which completes it so that the unity is now uh, in, in its fullness. And so this is a key here again, that Christ is in the scriptures speaking to us, and his work was not complete. And without the scriptures, which were to be then to be carried uh, across the globe, uh, we are in a bad way. There's a reason why in Isaiah 42, we read that the islands, the isles, our most distant parts of the earth are waiting for his law. They're waiting for the inscripturated word. Uh, and that needs to go forth in, and it's always not the words of God, but the word singular of God. I think that's important because though we know that the word of God is, is comprised of plural words, it's important never to lose sight of the fact that it's a single word, a law word that proceeds from the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe and it's a creative word. He spoke the world into existence, uh, and therefore it has power in it that needs to be understood. And I think we take it one more step when Christ tells the disciples, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. In other words, as I point out in the article, he elevates the word of God to the supernatural realm, and we should not shy away from the implications of that. We should actually uh, embrace them and teach them as such. These are not just human words. They're the words of God, and therefore they have a power in them that is not native to the word of man. Uh, When all else fails and turns to dust, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And we need to realize that it has a sense of permanence, eternality, um, omniscience, and the omnipotence of God also lies behind it because his word goes wherever it will as the Spirit does, and it says, and it will prosper in the thing wherewith it sent it. It will never return to him void. All human words return to their speakers void uh, in the sense that we cannot guarantee results. We might say we're going to do this or that, but we're told by James, you should say, if God wills, you'll do this or that. So the words of men can be loaded with pretension. Right. The words of God are certain. And that certainty is embraced in the unity of God's word. It's a single utterance. He breathed it out over the course of 16 centuries through different men, but it's a single common word uh, that is intended for us that we're to treasure uh, and delight in and to see its personal nature, that Christ is speaking in the scriptures to us personally. It's not an abstraction. It's not distance. And even in Deuteronomy, read, you know, don't say that who's going to go across the ocean to go get the word of God for us. Who's going to go up in the sky to heaven to find it or down to the hell to dig it out? He says, it is nigh, it's even in your own mouths. It is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And therefore, when we deal with the word of God, we should always treat it as a unity, always defend it as a whole, not piecemeal, 
and that way we are doing justice to the juts and tittles because they comprise the entirety of what the Word of God is. And when we take this stance, uh, we have all of Scripture behind us, not just the particular piece we might be discussing or defending or promoting or preaching on. Right. So it's easy for people to look at the Bible, since most people carry one around when they go to church or they go to read it, and then look at the Bible as if it's just another book. Whereas you point out in the essay that the Bible is not a derivative work. It doesn't come from man. It comes from God. And you make the statement that not only does the word or did the word become flesh, but the flesh became word. Explain that concept. Right. Uh, what we have of Christ today in our relationship is mediated through the word of God. And so uh, he was the word in the beginning, the logos, but in essence, he now lives in the scriptures. Yes, he's seated at the right hand of the, uh, the father, and he's the king of king and warlord of lords. But the scriptures is a, a significant element in his redemption as it expressed through time in history and currently right now at this very moment and into the future. So uh, Christ, if you will, himself is inscripturated. There's a reason why he's called the word of God. In fact, it's not that I want to confuse this issue, but it, even John Owen, the great Puritan scholar, when he was looking at Hebrews 4.12, he says, okay, it says the word of God is a living, alive and a powerful uh, penetrating to this, that, and the other. Uh, he said, what or who is it? Is this the written word of God, or is it Jesus, the word of God? And he throws all the options up, shows how many, you know, several dozen scholars on both sides that were current at the time that he wrote his commentary. And uh, he finally comes down on his opinion that it was actually Jesus himself that's being discussed there and not the written word. He says, on the other hand, of course, uh, the fact that these are so intermingled is indicative that uh, there is an identity there. It may not be exact one for one, but it is strong enough that we have to deal with the fact that, you know, the living Christ is also in the living word. The exact same word is used of the oracles of God in Acts 7, when Stephen is speaking to the uh, apostate Jews who wanted to stone him. Uh, the, Moses was given living oracles. That's the word living is also the same word applied to the living God. Why is this the case? Because it shares the nature of him who breathed it out. And so Jesus is, in fact, present in the scriptures. I don't see why we find it difficult. We claim that he's uh, present at least in some way, shape, or form, even if it's symbolic in the Lord's Supper. But the scriptures even make it more clear that he indwells them as much as anything, you know, when we say that Jesus or God is imminent, meaning that he's in, in, in the creation as well as transcendent and beyond it, that imminence is very much true for the word of God. You know, you cannot see Jesus in every single uh, scripture. We're missing something because he's there, whether we like it or not, uh, whether we see it or not. And that would be credited uh, to our slothfulness and our blindness not to any fault on God's part in revealing himself and that's the point that you made earlier on scripture is not a record of revelation it is the revealing of God to us 
in, in, in a form that looks like words to us, yes, but there's more behind the words. Again, those words are spirit. They're not just merely words. They're not just vibrations in the air. There's something more and deeper. And if we start to treat the Word of God in an abstract way, in an inorganic way, if you will, we're going to lose sight of that. We're going to lose battles on account of that. We're going to not uh, come face-to-face with the Christ when we open up our Bibles. We'll simply be saying, hmm, this is a pretty boring section of Leviticus. I need to go to something more exciting or interesting that catches my attention. What a, a sad commentary on us that we can't see Christ in when he reveals himself in his most uh, in his deepest sense of holiness to us. Right. And that's something that I've encountered a lot, even among certain pastors who I think should know better, will say things like, yes, we do need to read through the Bible in a whole year. And aren't you glad we don't have to spend all that much time on Leviticus and Numbers? Because quite frankly, they don't pertain. So I would like you, if you would, to give an example right out of the book of Leviticus or Numbers as to how to view all the many sacrifices that were required. And there's great detail in terms of why certain things would be a trespass as opposed to a sin, as opposed to a peace offering. If people don't understand Leviticus as a living word, then it doesn't even make for good background material, but I don't understand how people could then appreciate Calvary if they don't appreciate the book of Leviticus. I think that's the key. Uh, what we have when we approach Leviticus is, is a fundamental problem is that, and I think this occurs because of our Bible reading habits. You know, lots of folks want to read through the entire scripture. Uh, I've always been minded of Paul's comment. Uh, he says, better five words that are understood than a thousand that aren't. If we would grasp just one important teaching out of Leviticus, I'd be better than reading, slamming our way through it and shrugging afterward and say, I didn't get much out of that. Well, that's on us. That's not necessarily on what God said at all, you know, because there's so much in it, and we are confronted with the holiness of God there, and we should be rejoicing in that. And his invitation to us, be thou holy, because uh, I'm holy. And so we are invited to be in fellowship with God, but not with sinful flesh on our part, but rather through the redemptions and the cleansings, which prefigure what Christ is going to do in bringing us back to the Father. And the other problem, of course, with attacking Leviticus is that there is where the second greatest commandment is located. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, That that whole 19th chapter of Leviticus where that appears uh, is just rich. Uh, And the fact that it's alien to people means that we're losing out on the whole counsel of God. You know, I think this is where Christ's comment to the devil makes so much sense. So if you look at it, Matthew 4, 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He's quoting from uh, Deuteronomy 8. Uh, and that every word, that's the one that we get snagged up on. It's an interesting comment Christ makes that every single word is what we live on, that uh, live by, uh, and we feed on it, and we're nourished by it. If you're not being nourished by Leviticus, we're not eating it right. You know, it needs to be seen as uh, superfoods, if you will. (laughs) Right. Much more more nutritious than you would expect. But if you turn your nose up at it and say, I want to have the ice cream and the 
and the and the uh, the prime rib, but forget the Leviticus because that's just not not. And see, this happens so much because that makes the this part of the word of God is a stranger to us. And when it is a stranger to us, we become a stranger to that side of God. We don't know him well, and we cannot walk as well. Uh, in his steps as a consequence. We can't honor him properly because we've already dis- discounted that some of the stuff that he wrote just is beyond us, even though it was intended for us. That's why Deuteronomy says, you know, it is nigh even in your mouths. Well, if you're not going to read it, you're not going to speak it, uh, you're not going to teach it to your children, it's not going to be in your mouths and you're not, not going to be nigh to you. It's going to be far away from you. Exactly. Because you've esteemed it a strange thing. This is a comment that's made in... Hosea, I think it's 8.12, he said, I've written to Ephraim concerning the marvelous things of my law, but he esteemed them a strange thing. Uh, and how sad, because here's God magnifying uh, his law to the people of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and what happens? They're esteemed a strange thing, bizarre, what weird stuff. Yep, Leviticus, weird stuff. And, and God is just stupefied at that because he sees them as marvelous things and we don't if we're not seeing eye to eye with god the problem is our sin nature and that's precisely the thing that appreciating the word of god and seeing it properly would overcome if we would but give it a chance if we would simply sit down with these books i think this is one of the great um things that dr rashtuni did is he went through these books that otherwise were ignored or neglected because they're not the fun ones he he didn't just do John three sixteen forever and ever. He went through the parts of the scripture uh, that most people neglect. And he wanted to reverse this neglect because he said the people of God suffer for not knowing the way. So one of the things that you use the expression in the essay that says a lot of people view major portions of scripture as having exceeded their shelf life. And yet, if we approach scripture that way, then what we're basically saying is we're discounting the work of Jesus Christ in his incarnation because we're discounting what came before and what came afterwards. And so it's a very, very narrow view of a relationship with God. It really becomes, I think, a relationship with God on our terms rather than his terms. That's correct. We have uh, an ongoing problem in relating to uh, Christ in this way. Because if you think that it's going to be mediated by anything else other than the word, because we are not eyewitnesses to him as the uh, disciples were. But, you know, it's interesting. Jesus put the better, more profound blessing on those who believe having not seen. Well, how is that possible? Well, because the fullness of the word is supposed to be there for us. Uh, and if we uh, give it short shrift, if we say, no, I want to be like Thomas, I want to see it, and I don't want to uh, do anything other than having an experience of God's word, as opposed to imbibing it, drinking it in, uh, I think we're going to miss out uh, in many respects. You know, the word of God is magnified and extolled throughout scripture for a reason. Uh, we're to be driven to it. The people of God were to be literate. And that's kind of was unusual back in that day and time uh, that anyone would be as literate as the Israelis were, but they were required to be literate because God did not want them to be ignorant. Uh, God was no longer going to wink at things. But nowadays, we have a very different point of view on this. We, we have detached that whole aspect, literacy, from its purpose, which is to know and understand God, 
to glorify him in everything we do. Uh, and we can't really do that if we are ignorant of it. In fact, we should, far from being ignorant, we should become teachers of God's word. Right. And if we're, and if we're going to become teachers of God's word, it should be the whole word, not pieces of it that we're teaching. And I think a real manifestation of the lack of literacy can be seen in how people are not able to maneuver through the grammar of their own language. If you can't tell the difference between a male pronoun and a female pronoun, and you decide you have to adjust to the current fad or whatever way you're to relate to it, you miss the personal relationship that God has to have with all of us who are in him, because if we can't be sure we know what he meant, if his word becomes an unclear word, then it's like having a personal relationship with someone who doesn't speak your language. Right. Paul makes the comment, uh, if the trumpet makes an indistinct sound, who's going to rally for the battle? So we need to be very, very clear on uh, sounding the scriptural message faithfully uh, in an appropriate way is required in a steward that they be faithful. We read in Corinthians and this notion extends to our handling of the word of God. We should handle it faithfully because if we make it the word of God void and one of the ways we do that is by cutting it to pieces. Uh, we read in Psalm 119 says, they've made void thy law, therefore it's time for thee, O Lord, to work. God gets to work when we've emptied out his law of its meaning, of its fullness. Christ came to actually fill, if you will, the law. Uh, not that it should be emptied or voided or dismantled. Uh, and we right. need to understand that, that uh, there's, there was something going on with the Pharisees and the scribes that was doing dishonor to God's word. Uh, in fact, the comment that Jesus makes in another connection is, says, ye do err not knowing the power of God nor the scriptures. Those things kind of go together. You know, you don't understand the power of God nor the scriptures. And their calling was to understand the scriptures and to apply them to everyone else. Look at Nehemiah, the, the scribes were told, like Ezra, they were to read it and give the sense so that the people would understand and walk therein. And if people are not being given the sense of the scriptures, how are they going to walk? They can't. Well, not only that, if you take a lot of the defeatist attitudes that people will say, they'll look at what's happening in the world. Oh, it's terrible. This mandate, that mandate. They don't believe, obviously, that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And so instead of looking at the eyes of that you get from viewing the living word, all you're left with is looking what's happening around you. And I don't believe that if that's how you approach it, you can come up with an accurate conclusion about anything. Right. Because in effect, you are treating the word of God as a dead word, not living. You made the comment earlier about uh, the shelf life of scripture, meaning by that, that some people say, well, this was for them back then. This is for an old ancient agrarian society. It's not for us. So what you're saying at that point is the word of God is dead to us, irrelevant. This has been, of course, the crying of a progressive approach to scripture for a long time. They said, well, God is dead for us. It's not that God is totally dead, as Dr. Rishwani points out in dealing with uh, the folks uh, like uh, uh, Altheiser and others who have said this claim, but uh, that is he's dead or irrelevant for us. And that's because it's a dead word to them. 
it's a uh, impotent word because it's dead. Therefore, it has no importance to us other than historic curiosity. But this isn't the case. The word of God is alive. It's living. I point out in the article that in the Greek of uh, Hebrews 4.12, the word living is put up at front. And in Greek, you emphasize a thought by its position in the sentence. When you put it up front at the beginning of the sentence, it's your point of emphasizing. Living is the word of God and powerful or effectual. And that means all of it, not just some of it, but the whole of it. And so we we miss out if we think that all of it uh, is subject to man coming in there with his scissors and saying, okay, on his marker and blotting these things out and removing these things as if Thomas Jefferson, who did the exact same thing, cut pieces out of his Bible and said, no, yes, no, yes. The Jefferson Bible is a, is a ragtag collection of scriptures that pleased him. But that's not the way the Word of God is. Even Dr. Reshtoni said on, on, the, on TV, some of it rubs me the wrong way. That was right. an honest assessment of, of his. Uh, because it's God's Word, and we're sinners. And therefore, it's not unusual that that might happen. And still, uh, we're to delight in it because it's what God requires. So uh, this tendency to treat the Word of God as if it was dead or impotent or in a coma uh, or in abeyance, that's the worst part, saying, well, you know, the clock is stopped on Israel and we're waiting for uh, things to get back on biblical track. We're kind of in this parenthesis, this no man's land between key pieces of Scripture. We're in the valley between the mountains of prophecy. We hear all these phrases. What a terrible way to treat Scripture. Yes. And scripture does not acknowledge any of that as legitimate. Rather, uh, any given moment is upheld by the Word of God, everything. Exactly. You know, years ago, and I'm talking early 90s, I had a pastor say, because he knew that I saw Dr. Rush Juni regularly, asked Dr. Rush Juni if he could give like a two-sentence definition of Christian Reconstruction. And I thought when they then did ask Rush the question that he was going to have to ponder it, well, he hardly took a breath. He said, reading every word of scripture as though God was talking to you, because he is. Right. You know, the uh, one humorist made the comment, you know, what's the theme of the Bible? Uh, and he made it even shorter, self-improvement with a hyphen, one word, self-improvement. And of course, that's so far off the mark, it's not even funny, but that's how a lot of people interpret it because it's just a bunch of uh, maxims and uh, proverbs, and it's seen as no different than Ben Franklin's syllabus of uh, various bromides and whatnot, but it's, it's, that's not the way it is. It's, it's actually the living word of God, and it is part of the revelation of God, and, it's part of, and it serves a redemptive purpose. You know, it's interesting to me, God's sense of humor. We always talk about the hardcore atheists like Voltaire, who are predicting that the Bible would be eventually done away with and would be a piece of history, and we would no longer be seeing them. Uh, being produced. And after he died, well, his home was being used to print Bibles after that. Right. So, uh, it indicates that God, his, his word never returns unto him void. Uh, and, and that means even every single verse of Leviticus still continues not to return unto God void. It has a purpose to play. Now, it might seem confusing to us. And I think part of that is we've not taken so seriously the fullness of uh, God's word. We have homework to do in applying it, and we're missing the boat on applying it. 
I think uh, the very verse after love thy neighbor as yourself has some curious things in it from our point of view about, you know, mixed seeds uh, and clothing. And, and I, people have asked me and talked to me about the, uh, the mixed uh, seed in the field and, and orchard and the vineyard stuff also reflected in Deuteronomy 22, nine. And you look at it and you, and you realize as you go through all the commentaries, everyone is guessing and speculating. We kind of lost sight of what that is. What does this mean and how does it apply today? And the fact that it was lost sight of, it's, it's, it can be recovered with study, and God will not allow it to be lost forever. Uh, but it's interesting to me that when you neglect something, it'll show the signs of that neglect. You get atrophy, spiritual and theological atrophy, and you cannot, cannot simply say, snap a finger and say, okay, you theonomists, pull everything together right now and explain it. I think it's pretentious to do that. You know, it right. took me quite a while just to find out why would there be a problem uh, with the field. Right. And they said, well, if you, if you intermingle the seeds to intercropping, what will happen is one of the crops is going to fruit before the other one. And that means that the entire field will then be subject to the first fruits before the other one comes out. That's why the literal word there is that the entire field becomes sacrosanct or sacred at the same time based on the first thing to fruit. So if you have the same fruit in that, they will all then ripen at the same time and not produce this problem where you're going to have to uh, provide first fruits for the whole field. The whole field is not sacred at that point. Um, so, uh, but do you know how many commentaries I had to dig through to find that? And it was an older a Jewish commentary because the Christian ones were kind of out to lunch and weren't paying too much attention or poo-pooing it. It shows that we have a lot of work to do when we have done a lot of neglect. If you neglect a road and it's full of potholes, it's not going to be fixed with just a quick fix. It has to be redone. Or it's not going to be fixed by saying it doesn't really matter that there are potholes um, and we'll just pretend they're not. <laughs> you know, that's the thing that, that is odd because these blessings are pronounced for keeping God's word. And lots of times curses are pronounced for neglecting it. I think the neglect is intrinsic. You know, we even told that it's the fool he doesn't take care of his field and lets it weed over. And we've let a lot of theology weed over. We've allowed the enemies of God to go in there and attack uh, the first five books of Moses and saying they, it wasn't even written by Moses. It was written by a bunch of uh, priests and, Deuter- and uh, whatnot over time. Uh, four different groups of people got their fingers in it. And so it's not really the word of God. It's a mishmash of humanistic nonsense that you can safely uh, toss. Uh, and there's a reason why humanists like that and why progressive Christians who uh, put man's word over God's word, uh, they want to sit in judgment on God's word. And as I point out in the article, the reality is it's God's word that's going to sit in judgment on us, not the other way around. We're deceived if we think that uh, we can uh, violate the word of God to break this commandment because there's no avoiding the problem. Was it in uh, Ecclesiastes 10.8? We read that whosoever shall break through a hedge, a serpent shall bite him. In other words, every boundary and every barrier that God puts up, when we break through it, there's going to be a penalty involved. Something's going to bite us. We're going to find out the hard way rather than the easy way. Uh, but men are very willful. They want to do things their way, and consequently, they will have to learn uh, uh, the Lord's chastisement for violating what God's law requires or declaring to others. And teach, that's the other thing, right? Here we go, Matthew 5.19. Whosoever shall loosen even the least of these commandments. Now, that tells me right there 
that the word of God's a unity, uh, because even the most insignificant scripture, where if you teach men that it can be ignored or neglected, it's not important, it says, uh, you shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. Your status, your standing with God as a Christian, as a believer, depends on you having a high view of even the least of these commandments. And I've mentioned this before many times. The least of the commandments is usually regarded as Deuteronomy 22, verse 6 and 7, which tells you what to do when you encounter a bird's nest on the ground with eggs in it. Now, the people say, well, that's pretty trivial. Right? You know, Why should that be the one that we get uh, told that uh, we become least in the kingdom of heaven if we don't do and teach it, if we loosen that commandment? Well, look at the commandment itself. It has a stunning promise attached to it. It says... You know, don't don't eat the uh, eat the eggs, but leave the mother. It says that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God giveth you. That promise of long life in the land is the exact same promise as the fifth commandment: honor your father and mother. This shows that from beginning to end, there's a unity in Scripture, the one that we've been arguing for. And if you look at it, you see it. But if you refuse to look, you won't see, and you'll operate in the dark. So don't you think when people get into talking about minor things and major things, like we're not going to dispute the minor issues of scripture, don't you think that's sort of presumptuous that we're going to determine what's major and what's minor? Yeah, there is a such thing as the weightier matters of the law. We read this in Matthew 23, because, you know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you tithe the mint and rue and cumin, but you neglect justice, mercy, and faith. You do the weightier matters of the law and not leave the other things undone. Now, right there in Christ's answer, he makes it clear there are heavier matters and lighter matters. But then he says, but they're all to be done. He puts them on the level that, they're, that none of them are to be neglected, but you shouldn't be doing the minor things and neglecting the major things. You should be doing all the things that God's law requires. Again, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that, because it proceeds out of the mouth of God, it has God's authority in it. And as Dr. Restroni points out, authority is a person. It's Jesus Christ speaking to us in the word. So it's not a bureaucracy. It's not a legal code. It's a living word. Correct. Scripture always talks about that we need to deal with the God with whom we have to do. It's not that we're looking at the word and the word's going to create issues for us. It's the fact that the word was spoken by God and had his authority behind him, and we trampled his authority underfoot by neglect or by outright disobedience to the word. And it doesn't matter how many theologians give you a pass if, in fact, God has not uh, retired a scripture or just said we're going to do things differently. So I've been reading through the book of Leviticus and Numbers, and I have a ton of questions. It's like, well, why is this so? Why is that so? And I look at those questions as springing up the Holy Spirit prompting me. I, I just think back, if we had lived during the time when that instruction was given, how many sacrifices would we be bringing in a given month, in a given year? And a lot of people say, well, we don't have to do that anymore because Jesus took care of it. But how did Jesus take care of it? And they want to say that Old Testament law doesn't apply anymore because of the cross, but they don't say why not mixing the seed ended with the cross or not mixing clothing or certain dietary restrictions. And so a lot of these conclusions come out of ignorance and wishful thinking, don't you think? 
we want to believe that we're arriving at a position exegetically, which means we've established that this is what the New Testament, for example, teaches about topic X, what this particular controversy here. Um, But are we right about that? Have we looked at both sides? Have we gotten the best biblical analysis? Or have we had itching ears and accumulated for ourselves teachers that suit our own liking? Let's just say, for example, what if, shock of shocks, the dietary law was actually still in force? Now, there's no penalty for it in Scripture. You don't get thrown in jail for eating a piece of pork or any such thing. Uh, Most of the law of God is enforced by him directly in ways that we don't know uh, and may not be aware of. But the point is, let's assume, just for the sake of argument, that it is actually valid. And we've misunderstood Paul or Luke or even Jesus' words, um, which are often used to support it. Um, That means that certainly, if that were the case, that we've been misled on a lot of points. Uh, Also, it means that people have shut down inquiry on that question because we say it's already settled. I think that's a dangerous thing. The whole point of the Reformation was semper reformana. We are always going to be reforming. We'll always examine every question, uh, especially on things that have have been disputed uh, as to what a Christian's obligation is. Take a good hard look at them. Make sure. Verify. You know, the scripture, the Puritans made a point saying we will follow uh, our understanding of scriptures as we understand it or as God may shine further light upon it. Now, if we've already closed the door on further light, where are we at? We may not be able to be in a position to appreciate an argument that someone might make for, say, the dietary law still being valid. We will say, no, no, that's, that's, he is a Judaizer. He's a dead letter of the, of the law. Uh, he's mistaken. But could you actually defeat that argument exegetically? You might be surprised to find out it's not really that easy to do. You right. Know, just like evolutionists think it's easy to defeat a creationist in our uh, debate, and they routinely lose the debates, and <laughs> they found out too much to surprise. So I don't want to open up that particular can of worms, uh, kosher worms or non-kosher worms, uh, because uh, that's not our point here. But I'm saying this unwillingness to consider and really review to be truly Berean. A Berean does not arrive uh, at that status by having settled everything, but by continually to scrutinize everything. You mentioned in the essay about we can get into ruts in terms of how we read the scripture, how we view the scripture, and how we apply it. So how does somebody who says, well, yeah, I fit into this category, I've got my ruts, how do you unrut your ruts? Well, there's always a newness uh, in Christ. You know, we're told that we're a new creature. Uh, and I think if we would grasp that, we would be willing to take a look. Um, first off, since we're dealing with the Word of God, we know that it's more than just words. If it was just human eloquence that would do it, well, then we just need to find a really good preacher who's uh, strong with words. Paul made it clear it's not eloquence that matters. It's that the power of God is behind the words. Uh, and that's where we need to uh, come to grips. I think the ruts would undo themselves if we were uh, open to what God is speaking in the scriptures. It's so easy for us to close off our minds. You know, we had that same closure of mind between Jew uh, and Samaritan in John 4. The woman at the well says, hey, well, my ancestors say we're supposed to worship here at Mount Gerizim. 
But you Jews say it's supposed to be you know, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is. And Jesus says you're both wrong, in effect. You know, it's going to be in spirit and in truth that God is worshipped, not neither on this mountain or Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. So what happens is the red people are the ones who are saying, it's Mount Gerizim, it's Mount Gerizim. The rest of Samaritans, we always are we here. We only accept the five books of Moses. Gerizim is the place. And then the Jews are saying, no, no, Jerusalem's the place, Jerusalem. And Jesus comes along and cuts the Gordian knot. Both ruts come under his precision laser beam and say, no, in spirit and in truth. And Jesus then uses the pictures of Jerusalem and Isaiah and elsewhere. You know, we're told uh, by Isaiah himself that Israel shall bud and fill the entire face of the world with fruit. This does not mean that Israel is going to have a great citrus industry, though they sometimes do. It means that Israel is going to be as large as the entire earth is, which explains what happened with Abraham when he lifted up his eyes northeast, west, and south and said, all this I'll give you. He was to be the heir of the world, according to Romans 4.13. So it's a world-embracing faith that we have, and it's the word of God that's going to level it all and bring it to Christ. It's the act of redemptive component uh, and therefore, we're ambassadors because God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself and unto us is given the word of reconciliation. That means the entire world will be reconciled to Christ through his word. That's why we are serious when we say the, the word itself, the giving of it and the scripturation of it and its continued action in the world is itself redemptive. It's redemptive in the sense that it, uh, part of the process by which Christ's work, his atonement is applied and the people of God called, and the uh, gospel goes forth uh, untethered and unbound. See, that's the other point, right? You can jail Paul, but he says, I'm bound, I'm in chains, but the word of God is unbound. That's the blessing that we have, is that the word of God, being unbound, can undo all the ruts if we would but open our ears and listen. Now, there is a section of the essay, the first part just I was like, wow. And then the second part, I have some questions. So I'll let you start with the section under the heading, the word of power. And you talk about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Why did you include that in this essay? What's the relevance of it? Uh, that the word of God, which is uh, Christ speaking to Lazarus, Lazarus come forth. Uh, it showed the supernatural power of Christ's words to bring forth Lazarus dead four days out of the grave. And so that is indicative of the power of God's word. You know, we saw him still storms earlier in the book, uh, in in the synoptic gospels, etc. But here we have the existence where death itself listens to Christ and when commanded, takes his hands off of Lazarus and releases him. And Lazarus walks forth from the grave. And I think that is a picture of more things to come because, uh, I quote right after in that context, he said, that's child's play compared to what's coming because God's word has actually commanded the entire world to be saved. And that's the part that challenged me because at first it's like, is he talking universal salvation that nobody will go to hell, everybody goes to heaven? That's what I wanted you to kind of explain. No, the, the point there is that the people living, the word goes forth across the globe and continues to gather uh, like a snowball, if you will, the snowball effect, getting bigger and bigger until at last, like the leaven, leavening the three whole measures of meal, all of it's leavened. 
it's that power. So God's word does not return to God until the task is achieved where everyone living is saved. The scripture sees those who die as no longer among the living uh, and therefore in an irrevocably permanent state. Uh, we can certainly support that with scriptures if we had to. It's beyond our scope today to do that. Right. But we're talking about the then living population of the world uh, is to be reconciled to Christ. And that's a process. It's a process that involves the ambassadors who take the word of reconciliation. And as Warfield says, we need to take every single word here in Second Corinthians five seventeen to 20 in its full sense. We tend to just slop over it and read quickly and not catch what Paul's saying. He says that what we've been given is the task of reconciliation, not just testimony, but reconciling the entire world to God because as Christ is using the word of reconciliation in the mouth of his ambassadors to bring the entire world to himself and reconcile it. Uh, this is consistent with, obviously, the famous verse in Romans 10, how will they uh, believe if they don't hear, if they don't have a preacher? Well, the point is that the preachers are going forth and that word of reconciliation will not return void. It will ultimately save the entire living population of the world by the end. And this is what's taught in Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23, where God commands the entire world, Be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am the Lord and there is none else. Uh, you know, as I liveth, he says, there's that oath. God actually swears by himself. There's no one greater to swear by but himself. So he swears uh, that the word has gone out of his mouth and shall not return to him uh, until every knee bows and every tongue swears. And I think it's important because we say every, every tongue swears. And this is not the, this quoted and expanded a bit by Paul in Philippians 2. But when Isaiah talks about every tongue swearing, this is in the context of the requirement in God's law that all t- people, when they give an oath, are to swear it in Jehovah's name, not in any false name, not by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin, chin, not by the tip <laughs> of the temple, or anything else other than the name of Jehovah. So we don't play games with oaths. And the fact that this is a saving situation, that these people are swearing because they're converted by Christ, because they're elect, and eventually the election extends to the entire world, is evident in Isaiah nineteen eighteen, where the conversion of uh, Egypt is spoken of in this wise, that the Egyptians shall swear an oath and perform it. I swear an oath to the Lord, Jehovah, and perform it. This is indicative of the conversion of Egypt, and then the conversion of Assyria afterward. So Isaiah is the man who kind of puts salvation in strange places from the point of view of a Jew. He puts the salvation of Egypt and Assyria, sworn enemies of Israel, both attempted to destroy Israel. Egypt clearly, by throwing the babies in the Nile, and Asher, Assyria, the same. Uh, still a threat at the time that Isaiah was writing. Uh, these were the enemies of God, and yet not only does Isaiah say they're going to be converted, he says... They are my people, and Israel is the third part. Israel comes after Egypt and Assyria. So, so complete is the conversion of the world that the enemies of God, the Gentiles, if you will, are going to come in prior to the completion of Israel coming in. So, when we talk about Isaiah 45 and the promise, we have to do two things. Recognize, one, God swore an oath in his own name. That must be important. And therefore, the thing that he says his word's going to do, which he gave the word is the preceding verse, be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. That will eventually happen. Lack of faith on our part that we say, nah, nah that's, nah, we have to 
evade that text and figure out an alternate way to take it so we're not on the hook claiming that eventually the world will be Christianized. But that's exactly what Isaiah is saying, and that's what the oath seals, because Scripture says an oath is given so there will be an end of uh, contention over something. This is explained in uh, Hebrews 6. No more differences. There's no more dispute over the matter. Well, we're disputing the matter, and that's not a good sign. (laughs) What God gives is to make it indisputable that the world would be converted to him on his timetable. A a modern way is it's got to happen now, and if it doesn't happen on my timetable, then it must not be true, and let's construct another way to look at this. And that's what I thought was interesting about that section, where you say normally people will say every knee shall bow and tongue confess, and it's like you're pushing the person down and saying, say it. You don't mean it or you don't really mean it, but you're going to say it anyway because you're overpowered. And it's a much more hopeful and organic, to, since that's the term we've been using, way, and that it should make people joyful, not fearful. Right. I like to talk about that sense of coercion just because you brought it up. Jesus would not allow the uh, demons to acknowledge who he was. He uh, would not accept praise or even acknowledgement from unclean lips. He, said, he commanded them to be silent. And he said, you're the son of God. And he would not allow them to do it. So God does not accept hypocritical praise or fraudulent praise or anything that's not from the heart. There's no achievement by compelling the unregenerate. Uh, in fact, we don't see any such thing in the... Uh, rich man in, you know, in Lazarus' story. The restaurant does a fantastic job of showing that the rich man had no real uh, repentance in his heart. That we use the, the phrase, the technical term correctly, he himself did everything he said and did was designed to indict God and show his hatred for God. You know, if you ask for something so small as just a, a, dip of wa- a drip of water, a drop of water on one finger, just to show... Uh, how measly Abraham was for failing to supply it and giving him that drink. And he also claimed that, you know, my brethren, uh, my family, they, the only reason that they're going to die is because you have not given them enough warning. Send me back or send Abraham back or Lazarus back, somebody back there to, to tell them and warn them. So he's claiming that, again, God was stingy uh, with the knowledge that's necessary for salvation. None of this is true. You know, Abraham even answers that they have the the prophets. You know, what does that mean when he when he said he had they have the law and the prophets? It means they have more than enough. And uh, so the idea that there was some insufficiency on God's part with the state that the word of God was in is wrong, and is condemned by Abraham's comment to the rich man across that chasm. And so to this day, there's a chasm, and I think we want to avoid introducing chasms when we talk about the word of God. We don't want to be split off from it or uh, uh, treated as a stranger or an alien thing. As we talked about Hosea 8.12, esteeming the law of God or the word of God is a strange thing. We want to be on friendly terms with it. We want to in, be inviting, and we therefore we go in with expectations that God's going to speak to us in the word. If uh, I think this is an interesting comment that Luther made when it, the complaint was, hey, can you get us some new pastors? Because we have a hard time hearing these guys. They talk too quiet. And Luther answered back, he says, better some difficulty hearing the word of God than no difficulty at all hearing something that's very far from the word. And so, too, 
we might have some difficulty in hearing the word of God, perhaps because of lack of understanding, of slothfulness in hearing, all these things that we, we've talked about. But it's better to be in that boat than to be listening to something very clearly that's not the word of God. And therefore, uh, one is a saving solution. It's the balm of Gilead. It's, it's what God has provided and is pouring out his word on us, spirit. Uh, and the spirit is in the word uh, and vice versa. But that organic aspect is so important. We need to see that as a whole. When we're holding the Bible in their hand, it's not the same thing if we pull a piece out of it. It's like, I'm not the same Martin necessarily if you uh, lobotomize me or something like that. It's not the same me anymore. Right. And I think the whole idea of um, the success that Isaiah talks about shows the different kind of battles we face, that we don't battle flesh and blood and that as you put it, we don't use Saul's armor to fight the giants. And so if we do what we're called to do, if we continue to improve or sharpen our sword by understanding the word of God is a living word, then we're going to be more effective. But also we will proceed knowing that we be faithful and God produces the results. Correct. You know, this has implications in apologetics, which is one of the big uh, areas of concern in Christendom today. How do we do apologetics? How do we defend the word of God? I think that defense can give away way too many points if we actually jump onto our opponent's turf and argue the way he wants to argue on his terms. We should refuse that. Uh, We should always argue uh, the scriptures as a whole, as a system, as Bonson and Van Til said, and Rashtuni endorses that, it's, it's needs to be treated systematically. It's only Christianity that has a systematic theology. The other religions really do not. Uh, and that's because of the nature of the word of God in, its, in the first place. But if we fail to acknowledge that or we discount it, we're going to be on very, very shaky ground. Uh, because then we're, we're, what do we have left? If we are discounting the word of God or treating it that way, that means we're sitting on judgment on the word of God. And that is always a dangerous thing. Even James says, you know, you, if you uh, do such and so, you, then you are a judge of the law and not a doer of the word. So the evidentialists, the ones who want to prove to everybody that excavations, archaeological digs prove the Bible is true, Ultimately, that's not what changes people. If you give them enough evidence, as you pointed out in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was told, you have plenty of evidence. We have to presuppose God and presuppose the validity of his word. Otherwise, we'll always be elevating man's reason and treating the Bible as a derivative word rather than the authoritative word. It must be treated as the ultimate authority. If you're starting to prove the Bible with other things, then those things, scientific, historic, archaeological, become your true ultimate authority. And then they sit over and above Scripture, and then uh, we repose our uh, trust in them as opposed to the Word of God itself. And every every time that happens, we, we have a problem. I think this is where John Frame did us a service in commenting in his systematic theology uh, and his other works. He says there's the same authority in God's actual spoken word as there is in what the prophets said as there is in the written word that is in our bound Bibles. 
they have exactly the same authority. And if we acted differently, we're the ones who are going to suffer for it. And the kingdom of God is going to have to wait for faithful individuals who will take God's word and treat it as the word of God and not just the word of men or the word of God emeritus or the word of God sometimes, but not now. It's always the word of God. And uh, we're on the hook for having read it. You know, to whom much is given, much is required. Well, we have the entire word of God. A lot of the generations did not even have that. But we have it, and there's no excuse. Therefore, you know, we should rejoice in it. I think this is the other point that we want to make. Is this is good news that the word of God is an organic whole. That's not a bunch of pieces that in a jigsaw puzzle that's, that could fall apart or we can't fit the pieces. It actually is a con- coherent whole. And the problem, if we don't see it, is in us. And that's good news, because if the problem were in the Word, we'd have a world of hurt because we'd have to rely on man. Exactly. So we're getting to the end of the time, but there was something that really did give me encouragement. It's under the section, the nature of a personal organic relationship with God's Word. And you quote Dr. Rushduni about how good friends, people who have a love for each other, spend a lot of time with each other. And sometimes one person could be listening to something the other person says, and they don't quite understand it, or maybe even at times they're not all that interested. But because of the relationship, they hang in there. And you then continue to say that just as the incarnation is a mystery, so is the inscripturation so that we have to have this view that says we may not understand it all. There are aspects that are beyond us, but nonetheless, we have to believe in the truth of it. Right. And I think Dr. Rashtuni emphasizes the delight of the psalmist in Psalm 119 in the Word of God. And what Rush is doing there is explaining what that looks like. What does that delight look like? Is it just a word as we say, oh, I delight in that, sure. Or is it something vivid and alive and well uh, and moving the heart of the person who is reading or speaking scripture? Uh, I think it's the latter. It's that the heart is moved in a, del- in a way that delights in and rejoices in every word of God uh, because the word of God is liberating uh, wherever so it goes, it prospers in a thing wherever God sent it. That you cannot say it with anything else except the word of God. And so this is delightful. And the testimonies of God, the statutes and precepts and ordinances and, and commandments are a delight because they are a light unto my path, as the psalmist is saying. And we need to cultivate that exact same delight to get excited about it. We're always invited to be excited about, you know, we're going to fellowship, we're going to church, we're doing this and that. But how much delight is there in when we crack open the Bible? Even to penetrate a mystery or study something in commentaries, we should be delighting in what uh, the fact that we're, it's the Word of God that we're dealing with. And I think that can be a conscious decision because I think he invites us to delight with him, uh, the psalmist does, and Dr. Rashundi magnifies that in a very, very positive way. Uh, and it's always as a whole. I delight in these things because altogether, that commandment is exceeding broad, we're told. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It's out of Psalm 119. And we're also told that we walk at liberty because we seek thy, his precepts, God's precepts. This is the path for freedom moving forward. No wonder he's delighting in it, because he's free, because he's not bound by the word of man, but I am bound only by the word of God, and that's a liberating word. 
Exactly. Well, thank you, Martin. I highly encourage anybody listening to get a hold of the Calcedon publication, Arise and Build. All you have to do is go on our website, calcedon.edu and subscribe. Arise and Build comes every other month. And I think if you take the actual essay, and it also appear online, maybe already, I don't know exactly, but you can either get a hard copy or read it online. This is something that may take a while to digest. You might need to discover your own ruts. You might say, well, I don't delight in in reading God's word. But if there's an impulse in you that says, but I would like to, my encouragement would be do what God's word says to do, and you'll see that grow. It's certainly been a, uh, you know, almost 40 year experience for me. And so it, it's not like it takes years and years, as you'll attest to Martin, it just takes the Holy Spirit saying, this is life. This is what you should feed on. Yes. Even the disciples said, you have the words of life. And so we need to see it in that sense. Very good. Well, listeners, once again, thanks for joining us. If you have any comments on this or suggestions for future topics, you can reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.